From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Big Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. What follows is a roundtable discussion hosted by BGSU's Center for Women and Gender Equity about the first woman and person of color to serve as the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. Titled Being the First But Making Sure You Are Not the Last, this conversation has been adapted for the Big Ideas podcast. This panel was moderated by CWGE Director Dr. Casey Farrell Snyder and features three guests. Dr. Melissa Miller is Professor of Political Science at BGSU and a former ICS faculty fellow. Dr. Kathleen Coleman is a lecturer of English at The Ohio State University and a recent graduate of BGSU's American Culture Studies PhD program. Dr. Lisa DuBose serves as the Director of Human Resources for Employee Relations and Professional Development at BGSU, where she also earned her doctorate in leadership studies, and she has taught for the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. Due to the ongoing pandemic, this roundtable was recorded remotely via computer. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University is situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations, present and past, who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts toward decolonizing history, and we honor the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Hello, thank you all so much for being with us. My name is Casey Farrell Snyder. I am the director of the Center for Women and Gender Equity and the co-director of the Center for Violence Prevention Education at BGSU. Today, we have some great guests with us to talk about our new vice president, Kamala Harris, the first woman and first woman of color into this role of vice president of the United States. And our program today, being the first, but making sure you are not the last, is presented by the Center for Women and Gender Equity and part of the Division of Diversity and Belonging. Our roundtable participants today are Dr. Melissa Miller. She is an expert on American politics with a specific focus on elections and voting behavior, women in American politics, public opinion, and the media. She teaches courses in American government, political parties, voter behavior, women in American politics, and research methods. In 2016, Dr. Miller was named Master Teacher, which is the highest teaching award on campus. Dr. Kathleen Coleman completed her PhD in American Culture Studies at Bowling Green State University in 2020, so congratulations. She's currently serving as a lecturer of English at The Ohio State University. Her research focuses on representations of gender in film, television, literature, and other popular culture texts. Dr. Coleman is working on turning her dissertation, If She Were President, Fictional Representations of Female U.S. Presidents in Film, Television, and Literature, into a monograph. And Dr. Lisa E. DeBose is a duly certified human resources administrator with nearly three decades of experience in public and private sector industries. She is currently employed as Director of Human Resources for Employee Relations and Professional Development at Bowling Green State University, where she also earned her EDD in Leadership Studies. 
She has instructed as an adjunct at two universities, which include teaching for the past two summers, an accelerated master's level strategic human resources course for the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. So thank you all so much for being here for our roundtable discussion. I'm really excited to hear from all of you and hear your perspectives. So we're going to kind of dive right in here if we could. Um, My first question, and I'm going to ask all of you to answer, and Dr. Coleman, if you could start, share what your initial reaction was when you found out that a woman was nominated for the VP slot and or that there was a woman VP elect. Yeah, it was very exciting. I really didn't think that would happen. I was finishing my dissertation on a similar topic right as the last woman who was still running for president dropped out of the race. I was literally finishing the last few bits of my manuscript that day that she dropped out. So to find out that Kamala had been picked as Joe Biden's VP choice, I was delighted. And then to have them actually win, I was also delighted. But again, I was surprised. All of my research was indicating that things were not necessarily going to go in that direction for this election cycle, because historically we've had a lot of trouble getting women past a certain point in that process. And even though women have made it all the way to even the top of the ticket as a party nominee, a major party nominee, no woman had yet actually won the electoral college. So it was a sense of both joy and relief and also man, I'm going to have to revise a lot of stuff now in my work, Uh, but I'm happy to do that. I think it's a great reason to do that. So, yeah. Thank you. Dr. Miller. Yeah, I actually have two responses. The first was when Joe Biden named Kamala Harris to be his VP nominee, which happened in August. I wasn't surprised. And I think that's kind of a cool thing that in fact, there has been some normalization of women on a presidential ticket running for president. There had been two prior nominees for vice president on a major party ticket. And there had been a weeks long veep stakes that I'd been following closely. Joe Biden had signaled that he would name a woman all the way back in March during a debate with Bernie Sanders. So I wasn't surprised. It was more like, oh, okay, good pick. You know, I immediately went to my political science brain. Okay, what does she bring to the ticket, et cetera, et cetera. But then fast forward to the Saturday after the election, which was the day that it became clear and was basically announced in the media that the Biden-Harris ticket had won. I was driving with my teenage son and I suddenly got this chill and I turned to my son and I said, I don't know if you understand what a big deal this is. We have our first woman vice president. I started pumping my arm and my teenage son said, mom, you need to calm down or we're going to have to pull over. So for me, it was a little bit of a delay, but a real sense of the historic nature and a real turning of the page in women's political history in the United States. Thank you. Dr. Bose. Yes, I mirror what my colleagues have stated. The level of excitement that I had was significant. It's significant because now there was representation of someone who looked like me as a a woman, as a Black woman, and as a researcher whose study was on the experiences of leadership advancement of African-American women, it told a different story. And just like my colleague said, the information that I had gleaned over the time period where I was doing my research showed something else because that's what history dictated. But this was a time of a shift, of a change 
during such an uprising of social injustice related issues. And so the excitement had many layers of it. But of course, key is representation is everything. When you have someone of a diverse background that looks different than what we had typically been seeing over um, the centuries that we have existed in this country, it tells us that there is acceptance. So my initial feeling was that of excitement. And then as a person of color who have experienced certain types of discrimination and who has, as a human resources professional, investigated those types of discriminatory behaviors toward people that didn't look like the majority, I also had a little bit of fear. What is this going to mean for the ticket? Will this ticket be allowed to actually push forward and win? And will there be additional threats that may not have been a consideration if a male had been selected for this position? And so I let that fear be overcome by the joy and excitement to say, you know what, it's a new day and we have to be a part of this continuation of change through conversations just like this. And so it's important for us to continue to talk about, yes, we can, yes, we are, yes, we will. And then the third element is that I happen to be in the same sorority as Kamala Harris. So as a senator and now as the vice president, she is my sorority sister. So I am very happy to be able to state that as well, but it's very meaningful. And I believe it's going to assist in helping to change the dynamic and the fabric of how we move forward in our country. Thank you all so much. So Harris talks a lot about those who have come before her and how important they have been to paving the way for her. Um, She's also said that although she's the first, she will not be the last woman or woman of color in this position. Um, Why do you think it's taken so long for a woman to be in one of the highest positions of government? And why do you think we still have not seen a woman in the highest position? So Dr. DeBose, do you mind starting and then uh, Dr. Miller? Absolutely. Well, we all know the research that is surrounding the glass ceiling. And when it comes to women in the workplace and how there's this impenetrable wall or ceiling that exists that says you can see what's out there for you, but we're not going to allow you to break through that ceiling to achieve it. So that barrier is something that's real. There's entire commissions that have done research about it. The Federal Glass Ceiling Commission is one of them. And there's significant research on the Department of Labor website that talks about these trends. Now, when it comes to a woman of color, there's an additional element that is of concern, which is called the concrete ceiling. So with the glass ceiling, you see it, but you can't attain it or there's significant barriers. With the concrete ceiling, what it's stating is we don't know about it. We don't hear about it. And the intent is for us not to achieve that. So that's the precursor of all of the types of barriers that have existed that prohibited women and women of color from advancing. So as we move forward down the continuum of what's happened in our government, there were laws that were put into place to try to abate those issues. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is one of them. And that's Title VII, where it really addresses any kind of marginalization and making sure that there's um, an entity that is reviewing those kinds of cases that are coming forward at no cost to those individuals that are feeling as if they're impeded. So we're beyond 50 years with that law. But guess what? We're still facing the same thing. So the history of our country has said, no, you women need to stay in a particular place, can't have too much ambition. It's okay if you have this level of position, but not this senior level position. It's great for you to be support, maybe beside, but not ahead. And that's not true. 
we have to catch up with what other countries have done and how they've had women in senior leadership roles running countries and making a huge difference. We're a superpower. So our superpowers have to be advanced by understanding that we are able, we are capable, we are knowledgeable, and we are forces to be reckoned with. And if we're at the table, we bring an entirely different discussion and element that helps us move forward. So it has hindered in the past, but every time we make an advancement, it chips away at that ceiling that's glass and that ceiling that's concrete. And we're going to keep chipping away at it. If I can just tag along on everything that Dr. DeBose said, and also add that everything that's true in the workforce, there's been a sort of a companion thread of research among gender scholars in political science and in women's studies, that those very same barriers have been present for women. Just to put this in historical context, the first woman to run for president was Victoria Woodall, who was born in tiny Homer, Ohio, and she ran for president in 1870 as the nominee of the Equal Rights Party. She was famously caricatured in a political cartoon by Thomas Nast as literally the devil. But let me just underscore, that's quite a long wait until 2020 for the first woman to be elected vice president. The office of president of the United States is the most masculinized elective office probably in the world. And the traits that people associate with it are strength, decisiveness, authority. These are not stereotypically feminine traits. Stereotypically feminine traits are things like compassion and empathy and caring. And that's not historically what Americans have been looking for in their president. So there has just been plain outright sexism among voters. Now that of course has been chipped away at in the feminism's first wave, in the second wave, a lot of progress had been made and women began to enter elective office in greater number, but still that highest glass or concrete ceiling had not been broken. And there are some additional reasons why we have yet to see a woman as president One is that there just aren't so few women in the pipeline. We think of those stepping stone positions to the office of vice president or the office of president, and they are sitting U.S. senator, sitting member of Congress, governor of a key state. And when you think that even as we sit here today, women are just 27% of the U.S. House and 26% of the Senate and only 18% of governor's mansions, there just aren't that many women that are there in those stepping stone positions. Why is that? Well, so few women run for office. And when they do run, they tend to wait until their children are grown up. Whereas a man might run for office for the first time, maybe at the local level in his 30s, A woman, when she runs for office for that first time, tends to be in her 40s or 50s, which then means she's going to have a much more abbreviated career and won't get up to that maybe U.S. Senate position. So that is another key factor. I am just so thrilled, however, that this one glass ceiling has been broken again to begin to normalize women at the pinnacle of American politics. And hopefully that will lead to more women being excited, picturing themselves and envisioning being involved politically and eventually running for office. My next question is, how does Harris's multiple identities woman. She identifies as Black, Indian American. She's a daughter of immigrants. Um, Those are some of the identities that she holds. How does that play into her role as VP? And Dr. Miller, if you would like to answer that, and if anybody else wants to chime in after, that would be great. 
first, let me say that those multiple identities were a factor in her being chosen. And that didn't surprise me at all. And in my view, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The number one reason anybody gets chosen as vice president is because of something they bring to the ticket. So we think back to Barack Obama choosing Joe Biden to be his vice president. Joe Biden had that lengthy resume in Washington, D.C., a lot of foreign policy credentials that the ticket needed, that Barack Obama felt would help him get elected. So now we look at Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris and the fact that she was a woman and a woman of color in particular was a real nod and acknowledgement that women and people of color were absolutely essential to winning in November. So this pick in that regard was normal. She was picked because he felt that she would help him win. In terms of those identities going forward, one thing that we'll be looking for is how visible and how prominent of a vice president she is. In recent decades, vice presidents have been more active and been given more responsibilities by the president of the United States. And so I hope that we will see Kamala Harris play a very visible role as a governing partner, because again, the more visible she is, the more she is a role model, the more that normalizes women at the pinnacle of American politics. So I'll be interested in watching for what portfolio she has as vice president and whether it might dovetail with some of those multiple identities. But at a minimum, if she's visible, she normalizes women and women of color in American politics, and I think will serve as an inspiration to women to hopefully run for office themselves. Can I add something to that too? That's an amazing answer. But I also want to point out that for any of us who take or teach women's studies courses that we often instruct undergraduates in the idea of intersectionality coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. And we think of intersectionality sometimes as being, here's how your identity markers interlace to increase oppression, basically, that someone, if they're a person of color, if they're a person of a non-masculine gender, that it can be a detriment to their success. But I think that in terms of deciding who he wanted to be his vice president, that Biden was looking at the fact that intersectionality can, as Dr. Miller said, um, help with representation and help the vice president speak to multiple constituencies. So I think that multiple constituencies can take inspiration from the new vice president's identity markers and that those are all good things. And I agree with that. And I will build on that even further. I used as a reference point in my research, Dr. Siddlewalker and, and Sneary, and they built upon research talking about the ethic of justice with Rawls and the ethic of care with Gilligan and added to it, it's not just the male perspective we need to consider. It's not just the female position that we need to consider. We also need to add that diversity element into it. And when you ask a person who has been typically marginalized, you understand with a little bit greater depth. Instead of thinking, well, I believe this is what they need. No, it's an inclusive conversation that allows us to give our voice, lend our experiences, which makes the overall outcome better and it reaches a broader audience. And I'll give an example. There's a couple of different um, groups that Vice President Harris mentioned in her acceptance speech. And she talked about her experience within sorority life 
and what that means to the divine nine, which is the historically black sororities and fraternities, and then also historically black colleges and universities. That is a huge factions of hundreds of thousands of individuals who could individually vote, but the level of influence that permeates from that group is significant. And so that movement was expanded. So you have the female, you have the person of color, you have the educational background that sometimes had been underrated saying they can't accomplish certain things and it has been demonstrated to be inaccurate. And so with this accurate review of who was selected, who was able to show and share that these experiences of her life brought her to the point of being qualified and capable, it's significant and it made all the difference in the election. So I agree exactly with what my colleagues stated. Thank you. I'm going to jump to a question because I think it relates to some of the things that you're talking about. Um, Amanda Clayton, who's a political scientist at Vanderbilt University, said that women can either be seen as leaders or they can be seen as feminine and the two don't go together. And so this classic double bind, how do we get past that? How do women who want to go into politics or who are in politics handle that? Let me just say that for listeners to recall, one of the most prominent memories that many of us will have, and it's easy to Google, you can easily Google this and watch it on YouTube, and it was just shocking. But it really brought to millions of television viewers the double bind in like Technicolor. And that was a 2008 presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, where one of the reporters on the stage pointed out in his question to Hillary Clinton that New Hampshire voters did, according to the polls, think that she was more qualified to be president and had the experience necessary for the job, more so than her male competitors and Barack Obama in particular. The reporter then went on to say, however, that New Hampshire voters didn't like her as much as they liked Barack Obama, and would she like to respond to that? That was sort of the double bind in a nutshell, that, you know, she had the qualities to be president, but it's another way of saying sort of like, you're not feminine enough. One um, good bit of news I can report from the world of political science is that recent research on this question is suggesting that the double bind is not as pronounced as it used to be for women on the ballot. So there was an interesting study by Deborah Jordan Brooks of Dartmouth. And she did a series of experiments in which she asked voters to read a mocked up news article that she made look like an actual news article about a US Senate candidate. And there were different news articles that she used. One was about a candidate who broke down crying on the campaign trail. One was about a candidate who showed anger on the campaign trail. And then at random, the people who participated in this experiment, they only read about one candidate. They either read about a candidate named Karen or they read about a candidate named Kevin. And that was the only difference in what these voters uh, read about in terms of these candidate descriptions for U.S. Senate. And guess what? There were no significant differences in how the candidates were rated. So she interpreted this as evidence that maybe we're not anymore penalizing women for appearing too feminine and read that as sort of weak 
not strong enough, susceptible to crying, nor do they penalize women for being real strong as when they show anger on the campaign trail. So that's one of several studies in recent years that at least in politics, we are no longer penalizing women on the campaign trail when they rub up against that double bind. So I think there has been progress made. And I will add to that because I remember watching the four-part biopic of Hillary Clinton. And one of the comments she made is, I wish I would have been more aggressive, but I was told that I should not come across harsh. And so in that moment, I think she believed that she could have changed the potential outcome if she would have followed her instinct versus the advisement that people give on what people are thinking and what people are writing. One of the things that we have to become more comfortable with as women and women of color is being our authentic selves. Because when we're taking on characteristics that are being pushed on us, it's not going to ring true. And so we should have the same rights to be authentically ourselves, to speak about things that are of value, speak of experiences that we've had from our lenses that will build more rapport with audiences that look like us or audiences that support difference. And so I think it's really important for us to be more conscious of controlling the narrative and not always responding to the questions that are being asked of us in a way that's a lose-lose situation, but redirecting the question to say, I appreciate the question you asked. Let me tell you this. And speaking the truth of what their capabilities, qualifications are, because you will be penalized if they think you're too feminine. You'll be penalized if they think you're too masculine. So just be your authentic self, which says you're qualified to do the work and speak to that instead of the emotions that are continually tried to be placed on us to have to respond to. So even though the individuals may ask an innocent question, it can be skewed. And so we have to make sure we're prepared for that. Thank you. Um, Dr. Coleman, I think your research is so fascinating. And I am wondering if you can share a little bit more about um, prior to the election, um, the only examples that Americans had of president or vice president came from popular culture as far as women go in that role. So programs like Veep, if any of you have seen that, and Commander in Chief. So to what extent did movies and television shows help pave the way for Vice President Harris's election um, versus hinder the progress that she has made? Well, the examples of female presidency that are in popular culture texts in the 20th century are overwhelmingly negative to varying degrees. There's not a lot of them up until about 2000. And most of my current research has focused on 20th century representations, and those have been incredibly problematic. Those that are actually shown as somewhat positive have still an air of the ridiculous around them. They're in either cartoons or comedies or pieces with a little bit of unreality about them. There's a science fiction movie, for example. So having certain genres be represented with a female president lends it an air of implausibility, whether or not that female president is shown as competent or not. And then as we get into um, second wave feminism, the representations actually get more negative up until about the late 1990s. In the 1980s, we see several incredibly, I would say, direct pieces of backlash against women's pursuit of higher uh, political power. We see comedies that are farces. We see there's a novel where the female president is completely insane. 
And we see just generally a lot of this masculine angst where the first gentleman is a little bit more centered than his wife, even though she's presumably, you know, the one in more power and that he is just endlessly full of a lot of complicated feelings around his wife having more political power than he does. So I think that these representations, even if they were designed to put the idea in the minds of the public and the audiences of women could achieve the presidency legally, it's a possibility that it ended up having the perhaps deleterious consequence that it makes voters think negatively of the idea, even if that wasn't the creator's intent. Once we see getting into the 21st century, there's more representations. There's a ton of novels. And then, as you mentioned, Veep and Commander-in-Chief may be the most notable examples. But bear in mind, Commander-in-Chief, even though that was actually an overtly positive portrayal of a female president, it only lasted one season. And it was very much designed to be the female West Wing. And you can see a lot of commonalities between those two shows. And yet, unlike the West Wing, even though they are arguably of similar quality, Commander-in-Chief did not last nearly as long. And the main difference being this one is showing a female president, the West Wing is showing a male president. Veep, as wonderful as that show is and relatively high quality, she's not a competent leader at all. And similarly, House of Cards, we've got a high quality program but the female president is, you know, arguably duplicitous and has a lot of political machinations and she's really out for herself. So they have been gaining in number, which I think does help normalize it as an idea. But in terms of whether the character is shown as a positive leader, we really haven't seen that too, too much. I will say there are several novels from the early 2000s that do show competent female presidential leadership. But unlike television and film, Novels don't necessarily hit the zeitgeist as much. You don't necessarily have the wide audience as you do for visual media. Thank you. So we've been talking a lot about politics at the national level, but representation obviously is important at every level. And and I think you all have talked about that throughout your questions here. Do you all have any thoughts about having a woman and a woman of color at the VP level is going to affect us at a local level? As I stated earlier, representation is everything. And when you see someone that looks like you, it is encouragement to say, you know, I can accomplish this too. Let me look to see what it is that Vice President Harris has that allowed her to achieve this level of success. And how do I need to equip and prepare myself in order to be able to do that at a local level? Because she had to start the same way any other politician traditionally starts. And so with that, it's important for us to make sure that we're developing those pipelines that Dr. Miller talked about and making sure that we have mentors and sponsors that are able to help with that development. And some of the outcomes of the findings from the research that I did and where I was interviewing highly successful women who were over major organizations and had achieved levels of experience being an African-American woman. And a lot of it talked about making sure that you're gaining the experience that you need, that you're having networking um, as a part of who you are and what you do on a regular basis and not just touch points, but meaningful networking to say, how is it that I can be successful? Now, the benefit of having social media and technology the way we have it now, while you can have interpersonal relationships and having dynamic conversations, you also have the ability to research and watch footage of others that can help with your development. 
So if it's something that you're interested in doing, making sure that you're finding someone who can help sow into you information that can help with your growth and development. And it doesn't just have to be from a woman. It can be from others who can assist in understanding the process. Doesn't mean that you have to follow it exactly, but getting that historical understanding and seeing what you can build and how you can navigate through that process to make the change that you're wanting to make. So I think part of it is making sure that you have this fortitude, this courage to strike out and do something that's different, understanding that you may not be a part of the majority number-wise, but you can be a part of the change that does happen. And so as long as we are willing to nurture one another, we all have different skill sets. We all have different types of research, but our backgrounds and what we have to contribute all are factors that can assist someone or many in being able to reach their personal goals. And so I think that's the value of having a variety of lenses at the table, experiences, knowledge bases, because it all works together. I will just say that I think it may be some time before we see the effect of having Vice President Harris in that very visible national role, as well as other women. And so to the extent that there are women at the national level in prominent positions, it has this effect of young girls, young women, and and all women really, of beginning to visualize themselves. So there may be a little bit of a delay, but I'm happy to report that women, I should say girls who are in their preteens, their teen years now, watching the inauguration today, watching the, you know, the next four years, there's going to come a point when they don't remember that the U.S. ever didn't have a vice president who was a woman, right? So sometimes it takes some time, but I think what we can all hope for is that more girls and young women and women in general, women from diverse backgrounds, women from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, do enter public office because as we've alluded to throughout today's conversation, women bring a different voice to the table. And it's a voice that needs to be part of the conversation. So there may be a little bit of a delay, but at the local level, I'm looking forward to seeing it become that women aren't the anomaly that they have for so long been on the ballot. Thank you. Are there any other final thoughts that you all would like to share? I'll just share one quick one, which is if listeners out there want to accelerate the advancement of women in politics, it's very easy for you to take action. Just ask a woman to run for office, whether that's local office, so you know, whether it's city council or school board or mayor or county commissioner, women are much more likely to run for office if they're asked to do so. Men are much more likely to just take it upon themselves to run and not wait to be asked. It's an important ingredient in getting women on that ballot is that they get recruited by others. So that's something we can all do. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, if we're ever going to get women in those pipeline positions that will lead to to a woman elected president someday. We need women in these lower level offices with the years it takes to get to the U.S. Senate or get into a governor's mansion so that one day we can have a woman president of the United States. And I'll make a quick comment. Businesses are a microcosm of our government. And from my human resources lens, it's important for us to ensure that when we are in positions that allow us to have influence, 
to use that influence to make sure that we're not just talking about diversity, we're not just talking about belonging or inclusion, and we're not just placing something on our website because it looks fantastic, but mobilizing it to make sure that there are provisions that are made to make these things move forward to bring equity into the workplace more fully. So that means that we have to put the money and the resources to make that happen and understanding that it's not just the function of one department and division. It has to be the responsibility of everyone that is employed within organization to say, this is the part that I am accountable to do to make these changes. And the best way to do that is policy development. But beyond that is including it in essential functions where that any individual that is in leadership that's responsible for hiring, whether it's internally or externally, they are measured about how they're moving forward the goals of the organization. If there's a measure in place, then action will happen. It's easy to take action. You have to just do it. I want to add, too, that taking action and encouraging real-life political movement and women in business, that if you're an artist and you feel like art isn't activism, art absolutely is activism. Because as Dr. DeVos said multiple times, representation matters. So if we have better representations of women in political power, I think that it will continue to help normalize it to audiences. So if you're an author, content creator, or even just some kind of influencer and you want to amplify the voices of people doing this kind of work well, use your position, use your power, use your voice to do that. Thank you. Those calls to action, I think, are exactly what I was hoping to hear. It's a great way to wrap this program up. So I want to thank you all again. I know that everyone is incredibly busy, and I feel like I got so much out of this conversation personally, so I know that everyone else will as well. So again, um, thank all of you so much for being here. This is an exciting time. It's a challenging time, and I hope that everyone has a fantastic day. And thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Big Ideas. And thank you to Casey Farrell Snyder, Melissa Miller, Kathleen Coleman, and Lisa Dubose for the thoughtful conversation. Special thanks to the Center for Women and Gender Equity and the Division of Diversity and Belonging. Sound editing for this episode was provided by Deanna McKeegan and Marco Mendoza. Special.